If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 26 to 38. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a red copy around you. I would encourage you to grab it. It's certainly, you can use your phone, but it's nice to see it in the flow of the larger narrative. Uh, so if you want to take that, and actually, if you want to keep that, it be our gift to you. If not, you can choose it this morning, but we'll be in Luke 1, verse 26. Let me read this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name is Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Consider your relative Elizabeth, even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we do each week, uh, if you're visiting with us, we want to just take a moment to pause. So I actually want to invite you to put your stuff down for a moment and just get in your body, take a deep breath in and take a deep breath out, maybe a couple of breaths. We want to just kind of listen together for the voice of the Holy Spirit who's here with us, who wants to speak to us and to take everything that belongs to the Father and to the Son and to share it with us this morning. And so let's just take a moment to, to breathe out our cares and our concerns and our worries and just the burdens that we might be carrying in this morning, and let's take a deep breath in and, and be reminded that God is present with us this morning. And I'll pray for us here in just a moment after some silence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. We thank you that you are here with us in all of your fullness, that you withhold nothing from us, that you long to give good gifts to us, namely yourself and your kingdom. And so, God, we just want to release control of our, uh, what what should happen. We want to release control of our agendas. We want to lay down our own Uh, desires, our own uh, expectations, and we just want to, with open hands, receive a word from you this morning. God, may you 
speak to us and transform us. God, we know, that, as Mary said, that nothing is impossible with you. As the angel said, nothing's impossible with you. So we want to just, with Mary, say, may it be, may it be done to us according to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How are you showing up this Advent season? I don't know if you grew up in a tradition that celebrated Advent. I, I did not. I did not grow up in the church. And the church where I became a Christian, we did not celebrate Advent. So it was pretty much just Christmas, right? Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, our our kind of calendar was uh, dictated to us by Hallmark. And so uh, for the last season, the last decade or so, though, I think I was 30 years old before I ever heard of Advent or even celebrated. My wife grew up uh, in a tradition that celebrated, but I did not. And so um, it's come to be one of my favorite times of year, right? Advent is a season. We, this word Advent just means coming or arrival. And it's a reminder that we live between these, these two poles of the first coming of Jesus, the advent of Jesus uh, and his life, death, and resurrection, and then the second coming of uh, Jesus where he's going to establish his reign and his rule and his kingdom here on the earth. And we live in this, this tension. And, and really, Advent is a season for waiting. Advent is a season for longing. Advent is a season for watching and kind of living in the already but not yet of these two kingdoms and beginning to look for the presence of God in our own lives. I, want, I just want to pause here and say a big thank you to all those who prepared uh, all the beauty of Advent for us. So uh, my wife, Emily, uh, was here like all day yesterday. Thank you. She's our deacon of care and just deacon of beauty. She just makes things beautiful. All the lights, a lot of the decorations, the candles, all this is uh, brought to you by Emily. Yes, thank you, Emily. Um, Uh, and then also, uh, if you go out in the gallery, we'll talk more about this, but we have an art installation that was a massive team effort. Katie uh, and Liz and Kurt and Miles and all of our, some arts, a lot of our some arts folks were there p- putting that together, and Miles will explain what that is at the end of the service, but just so thankful. My daughter, Lily Claire, did the scripting for the breath prayer and then for the, the passage of scripture that's up on the, in the gallery there. We have some beautiful artwork up. So again, really thankful for the kind of uh, holistic ways that we get to enter into Advent, not just in the teaching, but also visually and through uh, the creativity that God has gifted to this church. So thank you guys for doing that. Uh, we want to get into this Advent season. As I've taught through it over the, over the years, um, lots of different kind of themes and lots of different ways we've gotten into and talked about some of these familiar stories. But I came across a liturgy that really spoke to me. So this year, as we're, as we're thinking about what it means to be a people seeking God in response to God seeking us, and, and this longing that we have, I think, coming out of especially the last couple years for beauty, for delight, for joy, for a, a deeper experience of God's love, I came across this old liturgy that really spoke to me, and I'd never heard it before, but this, this is a liturgy that the church would say together at the beginning of Advent season. And so I want to Uh, put it on the screen here. It says this, Advent is a time of devout and expectant delight. Not Christmas Day, right? Like Advent, the season leading up to is is a season of devout. So let's just read this together and let's say this and try to maybe make this our own. Advent is a time of devout and expectant delight. That's what we want to get into in the season, right? And and what does it look like for that to kind of like mature in us? The older I get, the, more, the less Advent becomes kind of like a trite, superficial, naive, like, like when I'm 25, it's like, yeah, Advent's amazing, so much joy. It, it feels different at 42. And I know talking to people, it feels different at 50, 55 and 65 and 75. When you're, when you're living in the tension of like the brokenness of life, the sadness of life, the difficulty of life, what does it look like to actually find in Advent 
a, a sort of deeper delight and joy than maybe you even thought was possible. Like you show up here this morning and maybe that's not your reality. You're not feeling super delightful. You're not feeling and experiencing joy uh, in your life. And so maybe this just becomes an invitation into something that you long for. And maybe, maybe today is just like, I, maybe you want to want this to be a season of delight. Or maybe this is a season for intensifying that delight and experiencing that. But I want to invite us into that. And I want to do it in maybe a way that um, is not obvious when you first read through this story, um, but has come really come home to me this year. I want to talk about and make a connection between uh, who God is and how he reveals himself to us and the delight that he offers to us. So we have the story here, which again, if you've grown up around church, you've probably heard this before. Um, just remember the context for Luke chapter one. Here you have Mary, this poor teenage girl. She's living in a land that's being occupied by a foreign power, by Rome, taken by force, breathing in the air of, of violence and domination, her very life uh, constantly under surveillance, constantly under threat. That's what it's like to be a Jewish person living in, in uh, ancient Palestine, occupied by Rome. Literally, she lives just a stone's throw from a major imperial trading route. And you can imagine after 400 years of silence, right, no prophets. At the end of the Old Testament, 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, or maybe it's Second Chronicles, who knows what was at the end of the Hebrew Bible, but 400 years of silence between the last time that God had spoken a word to his people. And so you can and maybe enter into that emotionally and maybe imagine the feelings of disappointment. You could imagine the feelings of abandonment. You could imagine the feelings of maybe resentment or grief at longing for God to bring his kingdom and his promised Messiah and yet not experiencing the fulfillment of those promises. And in the midst of all that, an angel comes to Mary and says, hey, I have great news. You're pregnant with God's baby. Now, I don't know if that's good news if you're a teenager that just got married and you're trying to, you know, I don't know what that conversation between Mary and Joe was like. Like, hey, I'm carrying God's baby. Sure, right. You know, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't expect that went well. Maybe it wasn't good news at the time. But the, the angel shows up and says, you're going to give birth to this Messiah who's going to establish God's forever kingdom on the earth. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced good, good news from a, uh, an unknown source. I don't know if you get those uh, emails, like spam emails or phishing emails from people that you don't know. Usually they start with like, greetings, beloved friend. You know, I'm reaching out to you. I'm the daughter of a wealthy foreign prince, and I'm looking for a reliable person to transfer my inheritance to. Would you just give me, you know, like your social security number and bank accounts? You ever get one of those before? I got a call a couple of years ago, like, hey, you're about to be turned over. Uh, it's on a voicemail. You're about to be turned over to debt collectors. And, and good news, we can cut your debt in half and we can help you settle that. There's all kinds of unclaimed cash for you if you'll just call and give us your routing number, you know. Um, now, I don't know about you, but the first question that I want to know when I get that email is, who is writing this email to me? Who is this person? Why do I know them? We're naturally suspicious because the invitation comes from an impersonal source. It's an unknown person, maybe an independent actor who's operating probably for nefarious purposes. And so we tend to just hit delete because we don't want to be taken advantage of. That would be the normal thing, just in case you don't know. That's what you should do when you get those emails, okay? Good news is always contingent on the character and the proximity and the trustworthiness of the source of the good news. And notice this good news that Mary receives isn't just something that's announced to her 
uh, you know, as some sort of an impersonal text message or a spam email from a trickster. This is an invitation from Mary's God, Yahweh, an invitation into a relational reality that will literally immerse her and inhabit her very body. This is an intensely personal and relational invitation. Notice the language, greetings favored one, rejoice, the Lord is with you. God himself is with you. And then he makes this announcement, you will give birth to a son. And and the language here is very specific about who this God is that's revealing himself to her. And it's not just a random God, it's not just a a single God, it's a particular kind of God. And I want to draw your attention to the language. Notice here um, how he talks about the Messiah. You will conceive and give birth to a son. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then down in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Notice the words that are used, the language that's used. It's, it's the language of the Trinity, right? The Son of the Most High. Son implying a father, right? Son of God was one of the most uh, characteristic titles used of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So drawing on a deep well of kind of the Jewish Hebrew imagination, the Son of God, God the Father, God the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, the power and life of God himself, the third member of this Godhead, will overshadow just as the Holy Spirit hovered over creation, bringing order out of chaos in Genesis chapter one. Now in recreation and redemption, the Holy Spirit literally overshadows Mary's body, her womb, the most vulnerable part of her, literally. And then the Holy Spirit will be poured out and will hover over the creation of the church in Acts chapter one and two. So we see this pattern of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit in Luke one and two is mentioned eight times. The Son is mentioned four times. And the Father is mentioned at least one time where Jesus calls him his Father and implied several other places. So what I'm getting to is that what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament about God himself has now become blazingly clear in the birth of Jesus. The living God is Trinitarian. And thus at the very center of the mission of Advent at the very center of ultimate reality, which is God himself, is a relational community, a community of self-giving love and delight and joy. And that's what we want to invite you into in this Advent season. I want us to see the connections between the Trinity and joy. I want to dust off an old doctrine because, again, this this is not just a doctrinal statement for Christians, Right? This is not like an old, ancient, philosophical truth. This is a, a living reality for us. And, and people do all kinds of weird stuff and have all kinds of weird, weird analogies. Just don't, like, it's not, the Trinity's not an egg. It's not, you know, like, it's just, it, it all breaks down. It's, it's so much bigger than that. And so I want to invite us to get into this as, as the source of joy. That's the connection I want to make is the Trinity and joy go together in the Advent story. And so the mission of Advent, when you get Jesus, you don't just get Jesus, you get God the Father and you get God the Holy Spirit. And we need all of them if we're gonna enter into fullness of joy in the Advent season. And so I just want us to kind of reflect on that together a little bit this morning. And then we're gonna go through the next several weeks and look at each of the persons 
of what's historically been called the Trinity. Again, the Trinity is just the basic doctrine. God is three persons in one essence, right? Unity in diversity, three in one. Everybody got it? Okay, good. Daryl Johnson, New Testament scholar, says this. Here's the good news, talking about what we see here in the Advent story. The living God is not a solitary God. The living God is not a lonely God. The living God is the Trinitarian God. From all eternity, the living God has existed in community as community, in fellowship as fellowship, in relationship as relationship. When we read the New Testament Gospels, we are reading the revelation of what goes on within the Trinity. That's what we're seeing here in the story. For Mary and the early church, the Trinity wasn't an abstract set of philosophical concepts about God or a codified statement of faith or a library of theological books and journal articles and resources like we have access to today. That wouldn't actually come until the fourth century after generations of reflection and debate that culminated in the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. No. For Mary and the early church, the Trinity was a reality they encountered in the living God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as they encountered the reality of God, a God that they could have never invented in their own imagination, nobody could come up with an idea of a God who is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that God actually coming to live in us is the very essence of our spirituality. Nobody would have come up with that idea. And so for them, it's something they experienced. It it transformed their identity their religious practice, their, how, how they gathered in community, and then their sense of mission in the world. As they encountered God in this particular threefold manner, you'll notice through the rest of the New Testament, they begin to express their experiences in their songs, in their greetings, in their prayers, in their writings, even their baptismal rituals were all ways that they were trying to get this Trinitarian reality from their head to their hearts, to get this Trinitarian reality into their imagination, right? Because again, remember, they've been living for 400 years with a sense of God's abandonment. And now God wants to get this into their imagination. I've, I've been here. I've never left you. And here's the particular way I'm here with you. He wants to get it into their imagination, into their relationships, into their muscle memory, right? Because trauma is stored in the very structures of our bodies, And he wants to remind them that this is the defining reality that's supposed to shape their lives. Trinity is not just a doctrine. It is the reality in which you live. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? We miss this oftentimes. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Dallas Willard, the Christian philosopher in his book, The Great Omission, says this in interpreting this passage, I hope you will agree with me that he didn't just mean getting them thoroughly wet as we say the words over them, but rather that baptizing them in the name refers to surrounding them, immersing them in the reality of the Trinitarian community. If you were baptized and you were lowered into the water, this is a symbolic way of saying your reality is now, you no longer exist alone. You have now been brought into, and you never were alone, but you especially don't, as a Christian, exist alone. You're being baptized, submerged, immersed into the reality of Father, Son, and Spirit, and raised to walk in a new life 
where your life is hidden with Christ and God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they began to talk about this. They began to remind each other. The way they greeted each other was with these Trinitarian greetings. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which is sort of like a, a doxology or a hymn or a, a kind of a formulaic greet, greeting that they would use. And you see this all throughout Paul's letters. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You would look each other in the face, grab each other by the shoulders and say, don't forget that your life is immersed in this reality bless you. 1 Peter 1, writing to exiles who had been driven from their homeland, diaspora Christians, driven from their homeland into all, scattered all throughout Asia. Peter writes this, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the comfort in the midst of injustice and oppression that lifted up the earliest exiles of our faith. God's got you. He won't let you go. This encounter with the living triune God is at the heart of the way that Jesus talked about his life with God. What what gave Jesus the strength, what gave Jesus the ability, though he was human, filled with the Spirit to fulfill his mission was this constant knowledge that though he had left heaven in a sense to come to earth and become a human being, his communion with the Father and the Spirit was unbroken. John 17, verses 20 to 26, he prays this strange, mystical-type prayer that is really kind of crazy when you think about it. But listen to what he says. Praying for us as his disciples. What is it that Jesus wants us to know? It's one of the last prayers that we have on record. It's one of Jesus' few public prayers. And what is it that he wants us to know? What is it he wants us to experience more than anything else? What is Jesus' prayer over us? I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if you knew that Jesus is praying for you? Like, he is. He did. He does. And, And here's what he says. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they, disciples, also be in us, not next to us, not at a distance from us, in us. Skip on down. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then he closes, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. In this mind-boggling prayer, Jesus pulls back the curtain on what has been going on for eternity within God himself. You ever thought about that? Like, what was God doing in eternity past before he created the world? And Jesus tells us right here, for eternity, God has been this relational community of self-giving love, self-giving joy, self-giving delight. That's so different than the way that many people think of God. When people think of God, they think of God as angry. They think of God as violent. They think of God as some detached philosopher or, you know, know, detached lawgiver or moral policeman. But notice here what Jesus says, the love that we shared before all eternity, that very love is still here with me right now. Three in one, unity and diversity. For eternity, the Father has been delighting in the Son. The Son has been delighting in the Father. The Spirit has been delighting in the Father, in the Son. 
That's the reality of the Trinity, a community of self-giving, vulnerable love and delight. I mean, how much do we need to hear that when we don't feel delight? How much do we need that to be real when it doesn't seem real? This is the nature of the triune God. It is abundant sharing and self-giving. And that's why I love C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity. He was obsessed with the Trinity. He wrote about the Trinity all the time. It was the foundation for a lot of his fiction, his writing. Um, he's, he called this the dance of the Trinity. He says, you and I have been invited into the dance of the Trinity. The Father loving the Son and delighting in the Son. The Son delighting in the Father. The Spirit delighting in Father and Son. It's a dance that's been happening since all eternity past and will continue into the future, you get invited into that inner ring, into that inner circle, into that dance. Thank you. Somebody's paying attention. <laughs> Mark 1, we see this again in Jesus' baptism. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. This is right before he's going into the wilderness. He's going to be tempted by the evil one. And before he ever does anything before he preaches his first sermon, before he performs his first miracle, before he does anything, he, in his humanity, needs to encounter this Trinitarian reality. The Spirit falls on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, the voice of his Father, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. If Jesus needed to hear that, how much more do we need to hear that in Jesus? You are my beloved children in whom I'm well pleased. This is the reality of God. He's an eternal community of delight and joy. Now, let's go back to Luke because I want to make this connection between who God is and what this invitation we see here in the Advent season, in this Advent narrative. What is the invitation that you will hear like a drumbeat throughout Luke chapters 1 and 2? It is the invitation to delight. It's the invitation to joy, to delight ourselves in the Trinity, joy and delight. I mean, there's an invitation to Mary to rejoice. There's a promise to Zechariah. You see it each of the narratives in, in Luke chapters one and two. You'll see it to Elizabeth. You'll see it to Zechariah. You'll see it to Anna and Simeon. You'll see it to, I mean, all throughout. You'll see it to the shepherds. I have good news of mega joy. Eight times in Luke one and two, there's an invitation to experience joy. And, and I wanna just like, it's so easy for us to miss this connection. I want to just highlight the obvious. Of course, of course there would be an invitation to joy, right? Not just because God wants us to close our eyes to the brokenness and the pain of life and click our heels and pretend like, you know, doesn't exist. Just escape reality and pretend like there's joy. No, they knew oppression and injustice that most of us will never see in our life. And yet, there's an invitation to rejoice. If God, and of course, if God is a relational community of love, delight, and joy, then it becomes no surprise that he's inviting his people to experience who he is, joy. The triune sending of Jesus by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit is just God overflowing and sharing more of his relational joy with his people. That's all it is. You ever been to like a really incredible party? Just a really incredible dance? 
I mean, even if you're not a dancer, it's just like there's just fun being had, songs being sung, and it's like pure joy. I'm not talking like, you know, debauchery. I'm talking like just pure joy. And, and, you're, and, and maybe you, from a distance you see it and you're like, oh, I want to get into that. And you show up and you begin to participate in it. And it just, it does something to you. And you're like, man, if I could just live my life in this kind of joy. I mean, that's what's on offer for us. But like times infinity with the life of God, the very source of delight and joy himself says, hey, we've got a party going on over here. Why don't you come on in? That's the invitation of Advent. And that's why I want to make a big deal about the Trinity, and I want to make a big deal about joy and the connection between those two, because I think how we view God will impact how we show up for Advent this year. As we show up to pray, as we show up to sing, as we show up to wait, as we show up to feast, as we show up to to relate to one another, in our pain and brokenness, our ability to have our imagination captured by the Trinitarian God will be directly proportionate to the amount of joy we are able to experience in this season. Our view of God always frames up how we show up for and respond to the invitations of God. There's no joy if God is an angry tyrant and a despot. There's no joy if God is just this you know, impersonal spirit of Christmas that lies in your heart. I mean, it's cute. It's sentimental. But it's meaningless, right? It's vacuous. I mean, think about it for a second. If God is not Trinitarian relational community of delight, if God is lonely, single God on Tinder looking for spouse or whatever, you know, (laughs) swipe left or right, then his revelation is not an occasion for joy, but maybe an opportunity to to be afraid or maybe to even pity God. That kind of God, that single, lonely God that doesn't exist in a community of delight, it would be like the ancient gods of Babylon who created human beings, not out of delight and joy, but created human beings because they wanted slaves. And so the revelation of those gods provoked fear because it was about power and about domination and exploitation. Lonely, single-person gods are not capable of the kind of love and delight and joy we see in this passage because they're inevitably self-centered beings who create other beings for their own, out of their own neediness, out of their own greed, out of their own loneliness and hunger or desire to take from others for their own self-gratification. In the end, these gods are weak, right? It's like any tyrant, any despot, like if you get beneath the surface of all the bravado and all the bluster and all the propaganda, there's a fundamental insecurity, right? Because they need somebody to be dependent on them to feel powerful. And so in a sense, it's tragedy. It's weakness. Because they're codependent on their creation or their subjects for their own sense of self. The Trinitarian God's not like that. He's not like an anxious lover hovering over people trying to possess or consume or derive a sense of self or exercise world domination projects. He's not obsessive. He's not, you know, like an anxious God would be like, you know, uh, Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, you know, my precious, you know, and he's like obsessing over his people and over his project and it's not God. 
He doesn't need us. That's the beauty of God. He's self-sufficient in his own community of delight and joy. He didn't create us out of loneliness, out of a need to be loved, out of a need to be served. He has existed as a community of love and delight forever. So he's free to then just give as a gift. This is the reality. So this is why this matters, how you see God and how you show up for Advent. If God is a relational community of love and joy and delight, and we believe that he is, if he's the center of ultimate reality and we believe that he is, if Advent is the revelation of God to us, then Advent is an invitation to them and to us to come home to the reality of life in the Trinity. That's what we want to spend time kind of meditating. We've been invited into life, joy, delight, love, the Trinity, to delight in and to enjoy God. Imagine that, like enjoying God, not just tolerating God, not just conforming to God's moral will, but actually, as the old catechisms say, to enjoy God forever. It's why we were made. This is the imitation of Advent. Imagine how different your life could be. I mean, can we just take a deep breath and just, just like, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's made himself available to you. Can you just breathe that in for a second and breathe out? Can you just for a moment locate yourself in that emotionally? I mean, can you imagine how that would transform your loneliness and the way you show up in community with a sense of desperation? Nobody sees me, nobody knows me, nobody loves me, so I've got to come into community and just grab all that I can take, or I've got to keep my distance, and I can't be vulnerable because, you know, I don't know what they're going to do when I show up. I mean, can you imagine to just know that you're, you've been invited into, you're participating in the reality of the Trinity, the community of delight? Can you imagine how that could transform your trauma, to understand that God and the Trinity is the source of your healing? to remember that and to remember that God is with you even in your deepest, darkest moments. Dallas Willard says, the advantage of believing in the Trinity is not that we get an A from God for knowing the right answer. The advantage of believing the Trinity is that we then live as if the Trinity is real, as if the cosmos around us is actually beyond all else a community of unspeakably magnificent personal beings of boundless love, abundant love, Abundant knowledge, abundant power, abundant delights. Man, I want to live as if that's true, but it is so, so hard. And so I just want to close as we go to communion here in just a few minutes by talking about why it's hard and, and talking about how we get into that. Because our hope during the next several weeks is that as we teach on the, the Trinity as we confess the Trinity, as we pray the Trinity, as we're invited into contemplative art installations and we pray breath prayers with strings and get that into our bodies, that, that, the, that, that there, will be, excuse me, there will be kindled within us, ignited within us a fresh season of delight in our faith. That's what's on offer for us. I think of Francis Schaeffer. Many people know his writings. He was a great apologist and philosopher, started a, a, pl a place for skeptics and doubters to come and find solace and to wrestle with claims of Christianity. But he went through this crisis of faith a couple years after he became a Christian and had this massive period of doubt. And he came to what he called my personal awakening of the reality of the Trinity. And here's what he says about how this transformed his life. He says, I came to realize 
that I had been right in becoming a Christian. I had the right truth about God, who he was, philosophically. But then I went on further and wrestled deeper and asked, but then where is the reality, the spiritual reality of this orthodoxy? And gradually, I found something. I found something that I had not been taught, a simple thing but profound. I discovered the meaning of the work of Christ, the meaning of the blood of Christ, moment by moment in our lives after we are Christians, the moment by moment work of the whole Trinity in our lives because as Christians, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is true spirituality, a moment by moment increasing experiential relationship to Christ. And get this, to the whole Trinity, We are to be in a relationship with the whole Trinity. So that's the invitation. We want to be a community increasingly marked by delighting in the reality of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we get into that? What's what's the barrier of getting into that? I just want to close with this little verse that I think is one of the most astounding, amazing verses in the Bible. Luke chapter 1, verse 38, is astounding. Look at it. Just get your Bible there. God shows up and says, you're pregnant with God's baby. You're pregnant with the Messiah. Nothing's going to be impossible with God. And, and notice Mary's response. How do we get into the delight? She's been invited, invited into this rejoicing in the reality of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And what does she say? I've got questions. <laughs> No, I'm going to need to research. I'm going to need to Google that. God, I'm going to need some time to check this out. No, what did she say? I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. Other translations say, let it be to me according to your word. That is astounding, and that is terrifying. Mary is teaching us that if we're going to get into delight and joy, it requires vulnerability. By vulnerability, I mean just opening ourselves fully to the presence and the power and the purposes of God. And here's the key, without the need to control the outcome. I don't know if you're like me. I like constrained vulnerability. I like selective vulnerability. I like to kind of be able to hedge and kind of maintain some control of the outcome. She just says, let it be to me, God, according to your word. In other words, I don't know what you're going to do. I have no idea what's about to happen. Nobody had ever been pregnant with God's baby before. (laughs) Just think about that. It's absurd. Because here's the thing. She's not just opening her soul to God to be saved, whatever you want to call it. She surrenders her body to God. Now, I I tread lightly here as a man trying to explain this kind of vulnerability. She opens her womb to God and says, have your way with me. She opens her reputation, which is about to get ruined, to God. She opens her future to God in humble obedience. Is there anything more vulnerable than opening your your wound, your womb to God? I defy you to find something more vulnerable than that from a physical standpoint. To be pregnant with God's baby, to be pregnant with the Messiah, is going to change everything about her. Let it be to me according to your will. That kind of vulnerability is terrifying because it's risky. To open myself fully, not just 
partially, but fully to God and say, let it be to me according to your will. It opens up the possibility of our greatest fear, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of being betrayed and hurt. Hey, God, there's been 400 years of silence, and now you want me to open my womb to Jesus? Yeah, I'm here for this. I mean, the more of ourselves we expose, just think about in your human relationships, you ever open yourself up to somebody and they just trampled on you? They betrayed you? They shared your secret with somebody? They mocked you? The more of ourselves we expose, the deeper the wounding when we're betrayed. Like many of us could call to mind our deepest wounding when we opened ourselves up and somebody hurt us. Probably somebody that you were close to. The word vulnerable comes from a Latin word meaning able to be wounded. I love Brene Brown um, in her book, uh, Dare to Lead. It's a leadership book that we went through as a staff a couple of years ago. She's a social psychologist, and she writes a lot about shame, and she writes a lot about vulnerability, and she has become a follower of Jesus in recent years, and so it's interesting to watch her kind of journey, but she says this, um, and I love this language, and I think it's so important for us if we're going to enter into joy and delight. She says, why do we insist on dress rehearsing tragedy in moments of deep joy? Because joy is the most vulnerable emotion we feel. And that's saying something given that I study fear and shame. When we feel joy, it is a place of incredible vulnerability. It's beauty and fragility and deep gratitude and impermanence all wrapped up in one experience. When we can't tolerate that level of vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. And we immediately move to self-protection. It's as if we grab vulnerability by the shoulders and say, you will not catch me off guard. You will not sucker punch me with pain. I will be prepared and ready for you. She uses this great analogy of like the joy of having children. When you go into your kids' bedrooms at night, if you're a parent, if you've ever done this, there's just a sweet little time. Your kids are especially when they're little. And you put them to bed at night and they finally go to sleep. It's just quiet. And there's just this joy of just watching them sleep. She, there's statistics say 90% of people also experience a weird emotion alongside of joy where you start to imagine bad things happening to your children. You like look into the future, ever had this experience, you look into this future and imagine your child being hurt. And there's like this sense of pulling back. And I, I can't enter into the fullness of this joy because I'm afraid they're gonna get hurt. And we do this with everything and especially with God. I'm not gonna open myself up. You can see it in, I can literally see it in worship. Like how many of us just have a hard time Opening up our hands, like the, the posturing of our body often reveals the posturing of our soul and our heart. So a spiritual practice for me in learning to be vulnerable is lifting my hands or opening my hands, even when I don't feel like it, because it reminds me that my heart needs to be open. But we carry our trauma and our wounds in our body. You can feel it in the tightness. You can feel it even in your breathing. Shallow breathing begets a soul that's not vulnerable. It's embodied. And so Mary invites us to this vulnerability, into this openness as a response to God's vulnerability. And that's why communion is this beautiful picture for us of why we can be vulnerable. We can be vulnerable because God himself is vulnerable. You ever thought about that? God made himself able to be wounded. The almighty God, ruler and Lord of the universe, became a baby, made himself vulnerable entered into the vulnerability of a life lived in service of others, exposed himself to sin, exposed himself 
to the shame and the humiliation of the cross. And yet, throughout his life, he knew that what held him in the midst of all of that pain and vulnerability was the strength of his loving connection with the Father in the Spirit. And that is why, in the garden, he could echo the words that I'm sure he learned from his mother Mary, God, let it be to me according to your will. Not my will in the Garden of Gethsemane, your will be done. Where do we think he learned that? Watching his own mom his entire life open herself up to God. That's the kind of vulnerability that's necessary for us to enter into delight, to open ourselves fully to the presence and the power and the purposes of God is the only way that you and I will ever be fully known and loved. That's what it means to live by faith. That's what it means to understand the Advent story that God became vulnerable. The Father sent the Son, Jesus, the Messiah, poured out his Holy Spirit, and now pours out his Spirit on us, and he invites us through grace by faith to open ourselves to his presence and power and purposes and to receive his love. And to do that day in and day out and to make that Advent an ongoing daily reality of God. And that's why we need to come to communion. We need this meal to remind us of the vulnerability of God as we take the bread into our bodies, as we drink the wine or we drink the grape juice, we take that into our bodies. We are reflecting that kind of vulnerability that's necessary for a life of faith. I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis because I think it summarizes what my hope is for us as we are invited to experience maybe in a deeper way this Advent season than ever before, the true delight and joy, not the superficial joy, not the naive joy, but the true deep joy that's mingled with sorrow and brokenness and yet hopeful as we look towards the second coming of Jesus. He says this, the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is being played out in each one of us. Or putting it the other way around, each of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we are made. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. You want to be warm, you got to stand near a fire. If you want to be wet, you got to get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that it has them. They are a great fountain of energy spurting up out the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man or a woman is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Friends, that's what we're invited into as we come to communion, to put ourselves in close proximity to the very presence of God to receive his love, to receive his grace, to receive his forgiveness. And what an honor, what an invitation to joy and delight. And so I just want to invite you into a time of response. We come, as we do each week. The way we practice communion here at Soma, we have stations here at the front. Take a piece of bread, tear it off. You dip it into the cup. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and receive this, to receive God's delight, to receive that you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased because you are in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to come with that vulnerability and open ourselves to God. I want to invite you to take a moment just to confess your sin, to, to cry out to God, to hold your desires and your disappointments before him this morning and just ask him to enter in. He's a God who delights in entering into those spaces with us, meeting us in those spaces. 
enabling us to say yes once again to his invitation. And if you're not there this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here, but please don't come and take communion. It doesn't mean anything if it's, if it's not united by faith in Jesus, right? But if you are a follower, we're gonna invite you to come and to receive that. And so let's take a moment to pray. And I just wanna pray over us, just a simple little breath prayer that we're using in this season. And I don't know where you're coming in this morning, but I just wanna invite you into a space of reflection. I just want to invite you into a space of prayerfulness with God. Again, just lifting your heart and mind to him. Whatever anxieties or fears or worries you might be carrying, let's just hold those before God. And let's pray that God would do a unique and special and supernatural work in our lives, that we would see him and his delight as Father, Son, and Spirit, and we would see that as an invitation to us to enter into that dance. And so we say, come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We open ourselves to your joy and to your love. May the love of the Father enfold us, the wisdom of the Son enlighten us, and the fire of the Spirit kindle us. Pray in Jesus' name.